Good morning, church. Really, 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 really quick. Max, come here. For those of you who don't know Max, this is Max Luck. He's been going to this church since longer than I've been alive, and he's half my age. Um, But he's been going here his whole life. He has been a faithful servant. There's pro- I, can't th- well, I can't think of like two Sundays in five years that he has not been up here. He learned an instrument to be a part of the worship team. He's led us in worship for years and years and years. And you are beginning, I'm going to call it exploring the United States. He's going hiking. He's going to Chicago. And then he's moving to Virginia. So you might see him in between before he finally settles in Virginia but he, this is his last Sunday he'll be with the worship team. So I just want to take a minute to appreciate you, say thank you. Just he has been an example of a humble and faithful servant for many years, so thank you. Good luck. We'll be praying for you, my friend. All right. I didn't tell him I was going to do that. Sorry. I know he loves it. We have a really unique worship team. They don't like everybody staring at them, Right? But um, I just thought that was important that we recognize Max for just his faithful and humble servant attitude. So thank you. So church, we're going to be continuing our walk through Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or click on chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes. Right, the, the preacher king who wrote Ecclesiastes, he's still in the, the middle of this spiritual quest. And from the, the beginning of this book, he's been trying to actually figure out the meaning of life. Right, the life is just meaningless. There's got to be some point to it. So let's see if we can figure out what that is. And here's what's ironic is he began with wisdom and he quickly wrote it off and said, nope, it's not wisdom. And he moved on. And as we get closer to the end of the book, he has circled back towards wisdom But what he's realizing is it's not the the wisdom that he was searching for, wisdom that is found under the sun, wisdom that is limited to us, but there's actually a higher wisdom. There is a godly wisdom. And in this passage of, of Ecclesiastes, we're in the middle of what seems to be a whole bunch of these random and unassociated proverbs and these wisdom sayings. And as we mentioned last week, this section is not made up of random words. But this section is actually built on the foundation that he has laid as he has searched for everything under the sun. He applied his heart, and in chapter 1 it says he applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And in this section he is weighing what he has learned as he sought out that wisdom under heaven, that earthly wisdom. And as the author continues to investigate the value of wisdom, he comes face to face with the problem of evil, right? He's specifically going to address wickedness in the world. And it's in this chapter that we're about to look at today that he teaches us how to be wise when we are in the midst of wickedness, right? These are wisdom sayings. These are wisdom teachings. And here he's going to focus on being wise in wickedness. The problem with this church is this is something that none of us can avoid. All you have to do is look at the news, go spend a couple hours downtown, maybe even talk to your neighbors for an hour or two, and you will find that we are surrounded by wickedness. We all have something to learn about how to be wise in the midst of wickedness. So we're just going to jump right in. We're going to go ahead and get started on this. We're going to start in chapter 8, verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1. Scripture reads, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? 
A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So really quickly as we look at this, we know that this author is actually talking about authority. He's talking about wicked authority, and so he gives us some advice on how we are to respond when we find ourselves under wicked authority. The short answer is, is that we are to submit to God. The general principle here is submission to our governing authorities, and this is something that the Bible teaches throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus told his disciples to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We know later that Jesus would be killed and hung on a Roman cross. Paul told every person to be subject to the governing authorities. William Tisdale, he famously called these the the powers that would be. Tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded at the request of a Roman emperor, Roman Emperor Nero. William Tyndale was sentenced to death. He was strangled and his body was burnt at the stake. And this was by order of King Henry VIII. Martin Luther called Christians to the duty of political obedience, that we are to obey our political leaders. And the emperor of Austria, King Charles V, declared Martin Luther an outlaw. Right? He, he banned all of Martin Luther's literature. He, he required him to be arrested He made it a crime in anybody in his kingdom, anybody throughout all of Germany to assist or hide or give food or place of lodge to Martin Luther. He actually did this. He said, hey, if anybody kills Martin Luther, there will be absolutely no legal consequences. And at the same time, Martin Luther and Paul and Jesus said, hey, we need to submit and to follow our authorities. So before you call your government the wickedest wickedest government of all times because they said, hey, wear a mask, or they increase your taxes, just stop and relax for a minute, right? Let's open up the Bible. Let's read. Believe it or not, there are more wicked things a government can do. The truth is is that every Christian is called to be a law-abiding citizen, right? We are to respond to any godly request that the government makes for help, right? This, This includes everything from paying our taxes to answering the president's call to volunteer service or military service. And in this passage, the author gives us advice on how to to be wise when we're dealing with a king, right? A a government who may not have our best interest in mind. How do we honor God by honoring the king? Simple answer would be obedient, right? The preacher begins this passage by saying, keep the king's commands, The preacher teaches what Jesus and Paul, the early church fathers, what they they all taught, that we should obey the government authority as part of our obedience to God. 
We do this primarily not to honor the king or the government, which is surely part of it, but we primarily do it to honor God, right? By, by honoring the authorities that he has instituted, by honoring the authorities that he has put in place, it is part of our obedience to God to be obedient to the authorities he has put in place. Obedience to our earthly kings lead us to reflect on our obedience to God as our great king. As Charles Spurgeon said in his sermon on this passage, if he be a king, then it is a solemn hazard to your soul if you come short of the least of his commandments. Remember that one treason makes a traitor, one leak sinks a ship, one fly spoils the whole box of ointment. He that brought, bought us with his blood deserves to be obeyed in all things with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. And this includes being obedient to the leaders that he has established. But the question that all Christians come up with, especially right now that we see, is that people wonder, does this obedience to worldly kings have any limits? Right? Must I always submit to this governing authority? Are there times when me as a Christian should disobey? And we we could go to Scripture for the answer. If we just go and the simple answer is we look at the answer that Peter gave in Scripture when the rulers of Jerusalem told him, stop preaching the gospel. Do you remember his simple answer? We must obey God rather than man. When people are under the rule of ungodly authority, it is tempting for us to rebel in an unrighteous way. Right? Instead, the, the preacher tells us that we should fight evil with godliness. And there are some examples as we, look out, as we look through Scripture for this. If we remember, Daniel was a prisoner of war under a wicked king. And Daniel refused to eat the unclean food that was set before him. He didn't make a big scene about it. He didn't go out on protest. He didn't make signs. He didn't throw eggs at the king. Instead, he exercised gentleness and wisdom by suggesting that the guards permit the Jews to experiment with a different diet. The plan worked, and Daniel and his friends not only kept themselves ceremonial clean, but they were promoted in the king's court. The apostles, right, the, the, the apostles of Jesus, they exercised spiritual discernment when they were arrested and when they were persecuted and they showed respect towards those in authority, even when the religious leaders were prejudiced and acted illegally, they still showed honor and respect to those leaders. Right? And this is not to say that there is never a, a time to fight against tyranny, including by the rightful use of force. This is something where our government has declared something called a just war, which is founded on biblical principles. Right? Nations apply those principles when they're looking to war or the practice of war. But we can also apply this simple principle to our, our, our pers- us personally. Right? Anytime that we feel the urge to fight against the wicked, when we're suffering oppression at home or in work or in our society, we don't let the desire for revenge or the, the hatred or the desire for our preference to overwhelm who we are as Christians. We don't allow that to take over our heart and adjust what we do or dictate what we do, that we act in ungodliness towards those who oppress us. Right? There is a time to submit and there is a time to stand against oppression. The problem is, is that it's sometimes hard to know which time it is, which often makes it hard to know what the wise thing to do is. 
Well, guess what? You're not alone. This is a struggle that's been going on for years. And if we look at the author, he even expresses that in verse 6. He says, a man's trouble lies heavily on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? And once again, we find ourselves restricted by the, the limited knowledge that's found under the sun, right? But before we act, we must exercise wisdom. We must seek discernment. We must seek for the right way and the right time. And while wisdom can't explain every mystery or solve every problem, it can greatly help us in our discernment in every decision. It's not easy to be a consistent Christian in today's complicated and wicked world. But here's the promise of the Bible. The promise says that if we ask for wisdom from God, we will receive it. Right? The, the author James writes that if we ask for wisdom from God, we will receive it. So when we are dealing with those times, when we are frustrated, the first thing to do isn't to close off our hearts and react. It's to seek the wisdom that comes from God and to ask for wisdom. See, church, when we address the wickedness of the world, it does not begin with rebelling, but it begins with submitting. Right? It begins with submitting and obeying the Father, the King, God, period. And as we continue and we look at this next question, why, why do the wicked men seem to be blessed? And he uses this as a, a question to, to add to his list of reasons why life is meaningless. So let's go ahead and let's look at this. We're going to go to start in verse 10. And the author writes this, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy places and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And what we see here is something that the preacher has already mentioned several times throughout this book is that people don't always get what they deserve in this life, whether good or bad. And here he notes that the wicked, right, those who do not fear God, apparently do not get punished for their sins, but instead live long lives. And as far as he could tell, bad people seem to have a pretty good life. And he was like Asaph, and Asaph was a, a worship leader in the, the, the temple in probably around 600 B.C., and he wrote these words. Asaph said this, he said that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he continued, they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, and they are, in, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And in other words, what he's saying is that God's enemies seem to get all the blessings. They don't get all the troubles that we have. They're actually living high on the hog. They've got money. They've got food. They've got good friends. They have power. They experience more pleasure on this earth than those who are trying to be obedient to God. 
And as we take a deeper dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 8, it gives the impression that these wicked people, that they were popular, right? They were well-respected by those. They were praised in the city. That these wicked people were sometimes prominent in the city, and when they're dead, just like everybody else, they were forgotten. But as far as their present life was concerned, they often seem to get what they did not deserve. They got praise. They got honor. They got respect. They got money. Things that the wicked do not deserve. However, as we look through this passage, we see something interesting. The author says that he knows that justice will be done. Although he knows that the world is full of injustice, he also believes in the final justice of God. If you look at verse 12, he writes this. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Up until this passage, when we read what the, the author is writing, he writes down things that he saw. He says, oh, I've seen this and I've, I've seen this, but here he uses a different verb. He says, I know. Right? He is stating a, f- uh, uh, a fact. He says, I know this. I, I, I know this is true. It's not something I saw. It's something I know. And his reply is not one of observation. His reply is one of faith. I didn't see this, but he knows this. He, he trusts that which he cannot see. He knows that one day justice will happen for the wicked and things will be well for those who fear God. So this first lesson that he tells us is we're struggling and that is where I guess second, first one is that we're to, to be obedient to God. But here he tells us that we are not to envy the wicked, we are to fear God. This is the third mention in this book alone, the third mention of Ecclesiastes of this fear of God. And as we go through the wisdom literature, as you look at Psalms, as you look at Proverbs, as you look through Ecclesiastes, you see this, this central theme of fearing God come up over and over and over again. And this phrase refers to many things. It refers to this attitude of submission to God. It refers to this attitude of respect for God. It refers to being dependent on God. And it depends on worship of God. Therefore, the the fear of God and obedience to him and to his word are the two inseparable components of general faith. Right of, of all faith, of genuine faith, we are to fear God. We are to be obedient to him. We are to be obedient to his word. That's what fear of God leads us to. As Paul talked about, it's this obedience of faith when we fear God. The preacher concludes that the wicked will eventually be judged and the righteous, it's the righteous are those who fear the Lord, will be rewarded. So he comes to this conclusion that it is far better to fear the Lord than to, and to live a godly life. The evil man may live longer than the godly man. Right? The, the evil man may appear, the wicked man may appear to get away with sin after sin after sin. But the day of judgment will come. And the wicked man will not escape. While those who fear the Lord will have eternal life that's filled with joy and peace and happiness and comfort and will be spending eternity with our Savior, the wicked will not escape justice. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And he tells us that those who fear God, they think eternally, not temporarily. 
Listen to what Peter writes to Christians being persecuted by wicked leaders. Peter says this, but, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Church, the the 80 years that we live, if we're we're lucky, that are on earth, it's just a minuscule when compared with eternity. It's not even a, a blimp on the map when we talk about eternity, yet sometimes we can't see eternity because we're so focused on the here and now. Here on earth, we are looking at the situation and we're trying to come to the conclusion in the middle of what we are doing. In reality, no trophies are ever handed out at halftime. Right? I asked the 2017 Falcons that. Well, it was a 21 to 3 at halftime, and apparently they forgot there's another half of football to play. It appears right, that they, they were focused on a little part of time when there was a much greater spot. And just like us, as Christians and us as people with our limited mind, we don't always look at the eternal perspective. Those who mock God now, they will face justice. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but we know for certain that their wickedness will not go unnoticed. Pastor Sean, uh, Sean O'Donnell, he said this, those who have thought of God as deaf, dumb, and blind will face the hearing listening and seeing judge their oppressions have not gone unobserved and they will not go unpunished without warning a chance to escape or hope of future restoration god will cut the chain of their pride and they will fall headlong into justice church we have to remember that god's timeline for justice may be unknown but his timeline for justice is assured it will happen it's going to happen he is holy Right? He is perfect. He is without blemish, and he has perfect justice. Therefore, we know that all wickedness will be judged. And so for those who fear God, they are wise because they think eternally, not temporarily. But there's also something else as we read this passage. That those who fear God, they realize God's nearness. To fear God is not only to to realize his holiness and how perfect and holy and without blemish it is, it's also to realize how near he is. And those who fear God are said to fear before him, meaning that they know that they are in his presence. Most people, including many Christians, they go through life and we hardly realize the constant presence of God. We don't even recognize the constant presence of God, but the person who fears God knows that God is always near that God is always with us. To live a God-fearing life is to live in constant awareness of God's presence in your life. Right? God, sometimes you say, God's just as close as a prayer. No, God is there. He's closer than a prayer. He is walking with you. He is part of you. He's in your presence when you pray, when you seek Him, when you walk with Him, when your heart turns towards Him. He's closer than just a prayer away. And we're told not to envy the wicked even though they seem to prosper. It will not go well for them in the day of judgment, 
For the Bible says that they will be thrown into the outer darkness. And Jesus even said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth to the place that they go. However, those who fear God have God. Right? They have the one who all good things flow from. They have the, one who, who, the only one who can give us joy in our lives. We have the great comforter. We have the one who owns a, a cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills also. We have the one who is the author and the protector of our faith. He is more beautiful than anything our eyes have ever seen and he is more powerful than anything we will ever understand. And here's the good news. Those who fear the Lord have him forever. We have him for all eternity. In his presence we'll have no pain, we'll have no suffering, we'll have no sickness. We will only have one thing and that will be him. Not only do we not need anything else, but when we are with him we want nothing else than him. The wicked don't have that. right? The, the wicked doesn't have that, the world can't offer that and they can just keep all of their junk. We are far better off with Jesus than the temporarily earthly possessions or reputation or status that the world has to offer. But church, here's the problem. is our eyes are drawn to the things of this world. Right? We, we chase the things that the wicked have. We envy them and say, oh, I want that. Or that will be good for me. Or that will be fun. And we chase these lesser glories of the world and we turn our eyes from God who's wanting to give us glory upon glory, who's wanting to give out of the abundance of his riches, not ours. <coughs> By the wisdom of God, the preacher trusts divine revelation to be more reliable than what he was able to collect in his data and his observation because now he says I know that he knows that ultimately justice will be done and that the righteous will possess more than the wicked will ever have or that the world can ever provide I want to look at how he concludes this final verse in the in the chapter so read me we're going to start in verse 15 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter and the author says this he says And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And church, as we read this, we need to understand that the, the preacher is now giving us a God-centered perspective. Right before it was a man, but now he's looking at a God. And he mentioned the days of our lives are simply a gift from God. Notice in verse 15, he, he mentions joy twice in the, ver- in the verse, and he's describing it as something that we can have now in our lives, that we can have it and experience it now in our present life. If God is always by our side, then we always have a deep contentment in knowing that he is near, in knowing that he is with us. Even in our darkest trials, if we fear God, we know that he is there standing with us. And it is the same fear of God that will lead us 
to eternal life that also helps us find enjoyment in this life right now. Knowing that God is with us, knowing that God is true, knowing that God is holy, knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God is greater among all things, we find joy in our life knowing that he is with us now. And here the author begins to undermine his once certain premise that all of life is, is vanity, that all of life is meaningless. And he recognizes that man cannot find the work of God in fullness. That man in his limited ability and his limited knowledge cannot understand all that God does. And so what he is able to define, what he can see is just limited and it's not actually what is there. And true wisdom includes that humility to admit that man cannot fully figure it out. Right, that we are limited, that we don't know everything that God knows. And so the humility and true wisdom begins that realizing we don't know what's going on in this fallen and wicked world. But we know that God is just and we know that God is righteous and we know that God is good and we know that God loves us. Yes, we see injustice and that's hard for us to accept. It's hard for us to understand. Yes, we see as Christians that hey, we have a lot of work to do. We know that one of our jobs here on earth is to make disciples. Right? We know one of our jobs here on earth is to glorify God. We know one of our jobs here on earth is to share the gospel with those that we meet in our words and in our deeds and in our worship that we want to draw people to God. Yes, we have a lot of work to do. But nevertheless, there is joy for those who fear God in the ordinary things of life like eating and drinking and sharing fellowship with the people of God, and it's there that we find joy in the things that God has given us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this book, and, and there's some debate because the book was published after he was, uh, after he was killed, and so there's some questions about when this was written. It was either why he was in jail or why he was waiting to be arrested by the Nazis. Right? Either way, I think we could agree that's a wicked government, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, our, our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work. It is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. We labor, but God nourishes and sustains us. This is a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice and to celebrate in the midst of our working day. Even when we are facing wickedness, we have joy and hope in knowing Christ. And through many difficult days and sleepless nights, we see that the, the preacher has applied himself to diligently to the, the mysteries of life, to seeking out things under the sun, and he came to this conclusion that man cannot find out the work that is being done under the sun, that we are limited. Even if we search everything, we are still limited in our knowledge. And just as Deuteronomy teaches us, the secret things belong unto the Lord, Right, there are just some things that we aren't going to know. God doesn't expect us to know the unknowable. But church, God does expect us to learn all that we can and to obey the things that he teaches us. And I forgot who it was that said it's, it's not the, the problem. My problem isn't with the parts of the Bible I don't understand. My problem is with the parts I do. Right? As we look at scripture, we're like, well, I don't want to do that. So we skip that. No, no, no. God has an expectation that if we fear God, we read his word and we obey his word. I think I told you there was a, a person who was new to coming to Christ and this chaplain that led him to, to, to Christ said, hey, I've given my life to Christ. What do I do now? And he said, oh, 
Just read your Bible and then do what it says. Right? That is the expectation. We just read the Bible. We do what it says. Church, if we want to know, this is, this is the thing. Is God doesn't expect us to know everything. Right? But, but he expects us to obey what he teaches. And in fact, the more we obey him, the more he reveals to us. Right? The more we obey him, the more he reveals to us. If we want to know the wise way to live in the midst of wickedness, we have to run to Jesus. If we want to know what we are to do in the midst of wickedness, we have to go to him. We have to go to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and truly our ultimate authority. As scripture says, it is Jesus Christ who is the true wisdom of God. With his authority, he has defeated wickedness. Jesus Christ and all of his authority, he's the savior of the world who died at his appointed time, right? He picked the time of his death. It is Jesus who surrendered his spirit to the Father. Nobody took it from him. He willingly gave his spirit to the Father and he offered up his life on the cross for our sins. And when he did that, he defeated death, he defeated shame, he defeated guilt, he defeated wickedness once and for all. Forever and ever, Jesus has defeated wickedness. And it is Jesus who is able to deliver us from death. It is Jesus who is able to protect us from the wickedness. It is Jesus who is able to give us the fullness of joy when we stand in the ever presence of God. It is when we fear God that he will save you forever. When we fear God, we know that our future is secure. Despite all the troubles and uncertainties of a wicked world, When we fear God, we experience the joy of God. Church, if you are struggling with the wickedness of this world, right, if you're seeking not only wisdom, but maybe the joy that seems unreachable under the sun, it is unreachable. You're never going to find it. The only way to to find that as we are being led to is to turn to Jesus. He is the wisdom of God. He is the source of all things good. He is where we find our joy. And it is in this passage that the author concludes that the wise way to live is to fear God and to submit to his sovereignty. That we are to fear God, that we are to entrust our lives and everything that we have to Jesus. And as we close today, I want to offer you the the invite if you've been searching and you're not finding. If you're looking for Jesus and you haven't found him and you said, hey, I'm tired of this. Right? Hey, excuse the words, I'm tired of being dumb. Well, there's a wise way to live, and that is to submit your life to Jesus. And if that is something that you have never done and you, you want to do that, I would love to, for you to come up as we sing this song, and I would love to pray with you. If you've maybe turned your back and said, you know what, God, i got a better way of doing things, but I need to come back, I'd love for you to come up, and I would love to pray with you. Church, this is a real thing. This is not a fake thing. This is when we are to be wise, when we are facing wickedness, we're not going to get through it on our own. The only way to get through it is to put our trust in Jesus. It is in him that we will experience the true joy of life even when we are in the midst of wickedness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to sing this last song. We're going to, we're going to just take a minute and reflect on our life with Christ in us. And as you sing this song, I want you to search your own hearts. I want you to search your life. Again, church, if you have never put your faith in Christ, if Christ is not in you, 
and you, that is something you want to do, I'd love for you to come up and I'd love to be able to pray with you. I'll just be standing over there in that corner. If you don't want to do that, you can fill out a card, put it on a card, we'll call you this week. Or you can just wait till everybody leaves. If you don't want people to see you, I'll be walking around here. All right, but don't, don't mess this up. Don't be dumb. Be wise. Dear Heavenly Father, we just, Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the, the life that he did, and we thank you for the work that he did on the cross. And Lord, I would just pray as we search our own hearts, Lord, that you would give us the courage, that you'd give us the honesty to look at where our lives are, that you'd give us the, the, the reality of our situation and if we're following you or if we're following ourselves. And Lord, if, if we're doing anything but following you, I pray that you would humble us, that you would give us wisdom that, that beyond anything we could understand and that our hearts would turn to you and that we'd be able to experience the life and the joy and the love and the peace and the comfort that comes from you. No matter what we're facing, there's nothing too big, there's nothing too bad, there's nothing uncomfortable that is greater than the grace that you give each of us. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's these things that we ask in your powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all the church said, amen.